and a bill that everybody likes. I was reared on the edge of Jesse James country out in Missouri and I visited the James farm at Kearney, Missouri, where the sons of Jesse James was then living. His wife told me stories of how Jesse robbed trains and held up banks and then gave money to the neighboring farmers to pay off their mortgages. Jesse James probably regarded himself as an idealistic at heart, just as Dutch schools, Dugan Scrolley, Al Capone, and many other organized crime, godfathers did generations later. The fact is that all people you meet have a high regard for themselves and like to be fine and unselfish in their own estimation. J. Pierre Pond Morgan observed in one of his analytical interludes that a person usually has two reasons for doing a thing, one that sounds good and a real one. The person himself will think of the real reason. You don't need to emphasize that. But all of us, being idealistic at heart, like to think of motives that sounds good. So in order to change people, appeal to the nobler motives. Is that too idealistic to work in business? Let's see. Let's take the case of Hamilton J. Farrell of the Farrell Mitchell Company at of Glen Knoll then. Finisalvania. Mr. Farrell had a disgruntled tenant who threatened to move. The tenant's lease still had four months to run. Nevertheless, he served notice that he was vacating immediately regardless of lease. These people, had lead, these people had lived in my house all winter, the most expensive part of the year, Mr. Farrell said as he told the story to the class, and I knew it would be difficult to rent the apartment again before fall. I could see all the rent income going over the hill and believe me, I saw red. Now ordinarily, I would have waded into that tenant and advised him to read his lease once. I would have pointed out that if he moved, the full balance of his rent would fall due at once and that I could and would move to collect. However, instead of flying off the handle and making a sense, I decided to try other tactics. So, so I started like this. Mr. Joey, I said. I've listened to your story, and I still don't believe you intend to move. Years in renting business have taught me something about human nature, and I size up, and I size you up in the first place as being a human, as being a man of your worth. In fact, I'm so sure of it that I'm willing to take gamble. So here's my proposition: leave your decision on the table for a few days and think it over. If you come back to me between. Now and the first of the month, when your rent is due and tell me you still intend to move, I give you my word. I will accept your decision as final. I will privilege you to move and admit to myself. I have been wrong in my judgment, but I still believe you are a man of your word and will live up to your contract. For after all, we are either men or monkeys, and the choice usually lies with ourselves. Well, when the new month came around, this gentleman came to see me and paid his rent in a person. He and his wife had talked it over, he said, and decided to stay. They had concluded that the only honorable thing to do was to leave up their lease. When the Lord Northcliffe found a newspaper using a picture of him which he didn't want published, he wrote the editor a letter. But did he say, please do not publish that picture of me anymore, I don't like it. No, he appealed to a nobler motive. He appealed to the respect and love that all of us have 
for motherhood. He wrote, Please do not publish that picture of me anymore. My mother doesn't like it. When John D. Rockefeller Jr. wished to stop newspaper photographer from snapping pictures of his children, he too appealed to the nobler's motives. He didn't stay. I don't want their pictures published. No, he appealed to the desire deep in all of us to refrain from harming children. He said, You know how it is, boys. You have got children yourself, some of you, and you know it is not good for youngsters to get though much publicity. When Cyrus H.K. Curtis, the poor boy from mining, was starting on his meteoric career, which was destined to make his median as owner of the Saturday Evening Post and the Ladies' Home Journal, he couldn't afford to pay his contributors the price that other magazines paid. He couldn't afford to hire first-class author to write for money alone, so he appealed to their nobler motives. For example, he persuaded even Louisa May Alcott, the immortal author of Little Woman, to write for him. When she was at the flute tight of her fame, and he did it by offering to send a check for $100, not to her, but to her favorite charity. Right here, the skeptic may say, Oh, that stuff is all right for North Clift and Rockefeller, or a sentimental novelist. But I like to see you make it work with the tough babies I have to collect beans from. You may be right. Nothing will work in old case and nothing will work with old people. If you are satisfied with the results you are now getting, why change? If you are not satisfied, why not experiment? At any rate, I think you will enjoy reading this true story told by James L. Thomas, a former student of mine. Six customers of a certain automobile company refused to pay their bills for servicing. None of the customers protested the entire bill, but each claimed that someone charged was wrong. In each case, the customer had signed for the work done, so the company knew it was right and said so. That was the first mistake. Here are the steps the man in the credit department took to collect these overdue bills. Do you suppose they succeeded? They called one each customer and told him bluntly that they had come to collect a bill that was long past due. They made it very plain that the company was absolutely and unconditionally right. Therefore, he, the customer, was absolutely conditioned, absolutely and unconditionally wrong. They intimated that they, the company, know knew more about automobiles than he would never hope to know. So what was the argument about? Result, they agreed. Did any of this method reconcile the customer and settle the account? You can answer that one yourself. At this stage of affairs, the credit managers was about to open fire with a battery of legal talent. When fortunately, the matter came to the attention of the general manager. The manager investigated these defaulting clients and discovered that they all had the reputation of paying their bills promptly. Something was wrong here. Something was drastically wrong about the method of collection. So he called in James L. Thomas and told him to collect these uncollectively accounts. Here in, the, in his words was Mr. Thomas too. My visit to each customer was likewise to collect a bill long past due. A bill that we know was absolutely right, but I didn't say a word about that. I explained I had called to find out what it was the company had done or failed to do. I made it clear that until I had heard the customer's story, I had no opinion to offer. I told him the companies made no claims to being infallible. I told him I was interested only in his cars and that he knew about more than his car than anyone else in the world.
that he was the authority on the subject. I let him talk and I listened to him with all the interest and sympathy that he wanted and he expected. Finally, when the customer was in a reasonable mood, I put the whole thing up to his sense of fair play. I appealed to other nobler motives. First, I said, I want you to know I almost I want you to know I also feel this matter had been badly mishandled. You have been inconvenienced and annoyed by and irritated by one of your representatives. That should never have happened. I'm sorry, and as a representative of the company, I apologize. As I sat there and listened to your side of the story, I could not help being impressed by your fairness and patience. And now, because you are fair-minded and patient, I'm going to ask you to do something for me. It's something that you can do better than anyone else, something you know more about than anyone else. Here is your bill. I know it is safer for me to ask you to adjust it just as you would do it if you were the president of my company. I'm going to leave it up to you. Whatever you say goes. Did he adjust the bill? He certainly did and quite a kick out of it. The bill went from $1.50 to $1.400. But did the customer give himself the best of it? Yes, one of them did. One of them refused to pay a penny of the disputed charge. But the other five all gave the company the best of it. And here's the cream of the whole thing. We delivered new cars to all six of these customers within the next two years. Experience had taught me, says Mr. Thomas, that when no information can be secured about customers, the only sound basis on which to proceed is to assume that he or she is sincere, honest, truthful, and willing and anxious to pay the charges. Once convinced they are correct, to put it differently and perhaps more clearly, People are honest and want to discharge their obligation. The exceptions to that rule are comparatively few, and I am convinced that the individuals who are inclined to chisel will in most cases react favorably, and if you make them feel that you consider them honest, upright and fair. Principle number 10. Appeal to the nobler motives.